Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Law School of America. The history of taxation in the United States begins with the colonial protest against British taxation policy in the 1760s, leading to the American Revolution. The independent nation collected taxes on imports, tariffs, whiskey, and, for a while, on glass windows. States and localities collected poll taxes on voters and property taxes on land and commercial buildings. In addition, there were the state and federal excise taxes. State and federal inheritance taxes began after 1900, while the states, but not the federal government, began collecting sales taxes in the 1930s. The United States imposed income taxes briefly during the Civil War in the 1890s. In 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified, however, the United States Constitution Article 1, Section 9 defines a direct tax. The 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution did not create a new tax. Colonial Taxation Taxes were low at the local, colonial, and imperial levels throughout the colonial era. The issue that led to the revolution was whether Parliament had the right to impose taxes on the Americans when they were not represented in Parliament. Stamp Act The Stamp Act of 1765 was the fourth Stamp Act to be passed by the Parliament of Great Britain and required all legal documents, permits, commercial contracts, newspapers, wills, pamphlets, and playing cards in the American colonies to carry a tax stamp. It was enacted on November 1, 1765, at the end of the Seven Years' War between the French and the British, a war that started with the young officer George Washington attacking a French outpost. The stamp tax had the scope of defraying the cost of maintaining the military presence protecting the colonies. Americans rose in strong protest, arguing in terms of no taxation without representation. Boycotts forced Britain to repeal the stamp tax, while convincing many British leaders it was essential to tax the colonists on something to demonstrate the sovereignty of Parliament. Townsend Revenue Act. The Townsend Revenue Act were two tax laws passed by Parliament in 1767, they were proposed by Charles Townsend, Chancellor of the Exchequer. They placed a tax on common products imported into the American colonies, such as lead, paper, paint, glass, and tea. In contrast to the Stamp Act of 1765, the laws were not a direct tax that people paid daily, but a tax on imports that was collected from the ship's captain when he unloaded the cargo. The Townsend Acts also created three new admiralty courts to try Americans who ignored the laws. Sugar Act 1764. The tax on sugar, cloth, and coffee. These were non-British exports. Boston Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party was an act of protest by the American colonists against Great Britain for the Tea Act in which they dumped many chests of tea into Boston Harbor. The cuts to taxation on tea undermined American smugglers, who destroyed the tea in retaliation for its exemption from taxes. Britain reacted harshly, and the conflict escalated to war in 1775. Capitation Tax An assessment levied by the government upon a person at a fixed rate regardless of income or worth. Tariffs Income for the federal government Tariffs have played different parts in trade policy and the economic history of the United States. 
Tariffs were the largest source of federal revenue from the 1790s to the eve of World War I until it was surpassed by income taxes. Since the revenue from the tariff was considered essential and easy to collect at the major ports, it was agreed the nation should have a tariff for revenue purposes. Protectionism Another role the tariff played was in the protection of local industry, it was the political dimension of the tariff. From the 1790s to the present day, the tariff, and closely related issues such as import quotas and trade treaties, generated enormous political stresses. These stresses lead to the nullification crisis during the 19th century, and the creation of the World Trade Organization. Origins of Protectionism When Alexander Hamilton was the United States Secretary of the Treasury he issued the Report on Manufactures, which reasoned that applying tariffs in moderation, in addition to raising revenue to fund the federal government, would also encourage domestic manufacturing and growth of the economy by applying the funds raised in part towards subsidies, called bounties in his time, to manufacturers. The main purposes sought by Hamilton through the tariff were to 1. Protect American infant industry for a short term until it could compete. 2. Raise revenue to pay the expenses of government. 3. Raise revenue to directly support manufacturing through bounties, subsidies. This resulted in the passage of three tariffs by Congress, the Tariff of 1789, the Tariff of 1790, and the Tariff of 1792 which progressively increased tariffs. Sectionalism Tariffs contributed to sectionalism between the North and the South. The Tariff of 1824 increased tariffs to protect the American industry in the face of cheaper imported commodities such as iron products, wool and cotton textiles, and agricultural goods from England. This tariff was the first in which the sectional interests of the North and the South truly came into conflict because the South advocated lower tariffs to take advantage of tariff reciprocity from England and other countries that purchased raw agricultural materials from the South. The Tariff of 1828, also known as the Tariff of Abominations, and the Tariff of 1832 accelerated sectionalism between the North and the South. For a brief moment in 1832, South Carolina made vague threats to leave the Union over the tariff issue. In 1833, to ease North-South relations, Congress lowered the tariffs. In the 1850s, the South gained greater influence over tariff policy and made subsequent reductions. In 1861, just before the Civil War, Congress enacted the Morrill Tariff, which applied high rates and inaugurated a period of relatively continuous trade protection in the United States that lasted until the Underwood Tariff of 1913. The schedule of the Morrill Tariff and its two successor bills were retained long after the end of the Civil War. Early 20th Century Protectionism In 1921, Congress sought to protect local agriculture as opposed to the industry bypassing the emergency tariff, which increased rates on wheat, sugar, meat, wool and other agricultural products brought into the United States from foreign nations, which protected domestic producers of those items. However, one year later Congress passed another tariff, the Fordney M.C. Cumber Tariff, which applied the scientific tariff and the American selling price. The purpose of the scientific tariff was to equalize production costs among countries so that no country could undercut the prices charged by American companies. The difference in production costs was calculated by the Tariff Commission. A second novelty was the American selling price. This allowed the president to calculate the duty based on the price of the American price of a good, not the imported good. During the outbreak of the Great Depression in 1930, Congress raised tariffs via the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act on over 20,000 imported goods to record levels, and, in the opinion of most economists, 
worsened the Great Depression by causing other countries to reciprocate thereby plunging American imports and exports by more than half. Era of GATT and WTO In 1948, the U.S. signed the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, which reduced tariff barriers, and other quantitative restrictions and subsidies on trade through a series of agreements. In 1993, the GATT was updated, GATT 1994, to include new obligations upon its signatories. One of the most significant changes was the creation of the World Trade Organization, WTO. Whereas GATT was a set of rules agreed upon by nations, the WTO is an institutional body. The WTO expanded its scope from traded goods to trade within the service sector and intellectual property rights. Although it was designed to serve multilateral agreements, during several rounds of GATT negotiations, particularly the Tokyo Round, plurilateral agreements created selective trading and caused fragmentation among members. WTO arrangements are generally a multilateral agreement settlement mechanism of GATT. Excise Tax Federal excise taxes are applied to specific items such as motor fuels, tires, telephone usage, tobacco products, and alcoholic beverages. Excise taxes are often, but not always, allocated to special funds related to the object or activity taxed. During the presidency of George Washington, Alexander Hamilton proposed a tax on distilled spirits to fund his policy of assuming the war debt of the American Revolution for those states which had failed to pay. After a vigorous debate, the House decided by a vote of 35 to 21 to approve legislation imposing a 7 cent per gallon excise tax on whiskey. This marks the first time in American history that Congress voted to tax an American product, this led to the Whiskey Rebellion. Income Tax Legal Foundations Article I, Section 8, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution assigns Congress the power to impose taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, but the same clause also requires that duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. In addition, the Constitution specifically limited Congress' ability to impose direct taxes, by requiring it to distribute direct taxes in proportion to each state's census population. It was thought that head taxes and property taxes, slaves could be taxed as either or both, were likely to be abused and that they bore no relation to the activities in which the federal government had a legitimate interest. The fourth clause of Section 9, therefore, specifies that no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid, unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Taxation was also the subject of Federalist No. 33 penned secretly by the Federalist Alexander Hamilton under the pseudonym Publius. In it, he explains that the wording of the necessary and proper clause should serve as guidelines for the legislation of laws regarding taxation. The legislative branch is to be the judge, but any abuse of those powers of judging can be overturned by the people, whether as states or as a larger group. What seemed to be a straightforward limitation on the power of the legislature based on the subject of the tax proved inexact and unclear when applied to an income tax, which can be arguably viewed either as a direct or an indirect tax. The courts have generally held that direct taxes are limited to taxes on people, variously called capitation, poll tax or head tax, and property. All other taxes are commonly referred to as indirect taxes. Pre-16th Amendment To help pay for its war effort in the American Civil War, Congress imposed its first personal income tax in 1861. It was part of the Revenue Act of 1861, 3% of all incomes over $800, US rescinded in 1872. Congress also enacted the Revenue Act of 1862, 
which levied a 3% tax on incomes above $600, rising to 5% for incomes above $10,000. Rates were raised in 1864. This income tax was repealed in 1872. A new income tax statute was enacted as part of the 1894 Tariff Act. At that time, the United States Constitution specified that Congress could impose a direct tax only if the law apportioned that tax among the states according to each state's census population. In 1895, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company that taxes on rents from real estate, on interest income from personal property and other income from personal property, which includes dividend income, were direct taxes on property and therefore had to be apportioned. Since the apportionment of income taxes is impractical, the Pollock rulings had the effect of prohibiting a federal tax on income from the property. Due to the political difficulties of taxing individual wages without taxing income from property, a federal income tax was impractical from the time of the Pollock decision until the time of ratification of the 16th Amendment, below. 16th Amendment In response to the Supreme Court decision in the Pollock case, Congress proposed the 16th Amendment, which was ratified in 1913, and which states, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes, from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. The Supreme Court in Brushaber v. Union Pacific Railroad, 240 U.S. 1, 1916, indicated that the 16th Amendment did not expand the federal government's existing power to tax income, meaning profit or gain from any source, but rather removed the possibility of classifying an income tax as a direct tax based on the source of the income. The amendment removed the need for the income tax on interest, dividends, and rents to be apportioned among the states based on population. Income taxes are required, however, to abide by the law of geographical uniformity. Congress enacted an income tax in October 1913 as part of the Revenue Act of 1913, levying a 1% tax on net personal incomes above $3,000, with a 6% surtax on incomes above $500,000. By 1918, the top rate of the income tax was increased to 77%, on income over $1 million, equivalent to $16,717,815 in 2018 dollars, to finance World War I. The average rate for the rich however, was 15%. The top marginal tax rate was reduced to 58% in 1922, to 25% in 1925 and finally to 24% in 1929. In 1932 the top marginal tax rate was increased to 63% during the Great Depression and steadily increased, reaching 94% in 1944, on income over $200,000, equivalent to $2,868,625 in 2018 dollars. During World War II, Congress introduced payroll withholding and quarterly tax payments. Tax Rate Reductions Following World War II tax increases, Top marginal individual tax rates stayed near or above 90%, and the effective tax rate at 70% for the highest incomes, few paid the top rate, until 1964 when the top marginal tax rate was lowered to 70%. Kennedy explicitly called for a top rate of 65%, but added that it should be set at 70% if certain deductions weren't phased out at the top of the income scale. The top marginal tax rate was lowered to 50% in 1982 and eventually to 28% in 1988. It slowly increased to 39.6% in 2000, then was reduced to 35% for the period 2003 through 2012. 
corporate tax rates were lowered from 48% to 46% in 1981, PL 97 to 34, then to 34% in 1986, PL 99 to 514, and increased to 35% in 1993, subsequently lowered to 21% in 2018. Timothy Noah, the senior editor of The New Republic, argues that while Ronald Reagan made massive reductions in the nominal marginal income tax rates with his Tax Reform Act of 1986, this reform did not make a similarly massive reduction in the effective tax rate on the higher marginal incomes. Noah writes in his 10-part series entitled The Great Divergence, that in 1979, the effective tax rate on the top 0.01% of taxpayers was 42.9%, according to the Congressional Budget Office, but that by Reagan's last year in office it was 32.2%. This effective rate on high incomes held steadily until the first few years of the Clinton presidency when it increased to a peak high of 41%. However, it fell back down to the low 30s by his second term in the White House. This percentage reduction in the effective marginal income tax rate for the wealthiest Americans, 9%, is not a very large decrease in their tax burden, according to NOAA especially in comparison to the 20% drop in nominal rates from 1980 to 1981 and the 15% drop in nominal rates from 1986 to 1987. In addition to the small reduction in the income taxes of the wealthiest taxpayers in America, NOAA discovered that the effective income tax burden for the bottom 20% of wage earners was 8% in 1979 and dropped to 6.4% under the Clinton administration. This effective rate further dropped under the George W. Bush administration. Under Bush, the rate decreased from 6.4% to 4.3%. These figures also correspond to an analysis of effective tax rates from 1979 to 2005 by the Congressional Budget Office. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America